Hello and welcome to Tonka Talks, a new podcast for 2023. My name is Michael Tonkin and today we enjoy the company of Kate Solly, who is the Sales and Marketing Director at CAPI, the sparkling mineral water company, and someone that I've had the pleasure of crossing paths with many times in my career. In this podcast, Kate talks about so many interesting things from what businesses should be doing from a messaging standpoint when sales are down to how to become more efficient in meetings, the rise of CAPI in the last 12 months, and of course, her awesome idea in COVID of when she invited five strangers to her home regularly for dinner parties um, and much, much more. Kate, in her words, might be mellowing, but she's still killing it. Enjoy the podcast. Kate, good morning. Kate Solly, welcome. Thanks, Michael. It's nice to be here. I cannot believe it's been this long uh, between last time we've met. Um, you know, I don't think I've actually spoken to you for, what, five years at least maybe? I was trying to work it out. I, I think it would be more. Because more. Because COVID in the middle of that. Don't say that. I, I, I'm thinking 10. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not. Well, last time I've spoken to you, at least, okay, I've followed you much closer than that. Um, and when I saw your picture in the uh, Australian Financial Review the other week, I, I think it said acting CEO or, or co-CEO, whatever it was, for Cappy, it definitely prompted me to reach out. Um, that media coverage, did it feel good? Yeah, it was great. And it was actually nice to tell our story. And I think, you know, the economy is pretty rough at the moment and yeah. ours was a good news story. Um, totally. So it sparked a lot of people like you reaching out. And I think I didn't realize the amount of management of inbound contacts from, you know, people I'd worked with before, people in the industry. So yeah, it, it, it reached a lot of people, which was really exciting. Are you saying I wasn't the only one that reached out? No, I'm afraid not. Damn. <laughs> um, come on, tell the truth. Did you go out and buy a hard copy of the newspaper? No, I actually, um, let's say I signed up to the app for the AFR and that's how <laughs> I, uh, I read it. But it was funny. One of my friends actually sent it to me before I even saw it. So oh my gosh! That's how I got notified that it was live. That's funny. Anyway, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about Cappy and the amazing growth of the business. But I thought we should talk a little bit about you and your journey, which I've been lucky enough to cross paths a few times. How's life? What's happening for you at the moment? Life's really good. Um, it's. Yeah, I, I was thinking about us. We've had so many iterations of how we've worked together. So yes. we're able to kind of cover that off as well. Life's really good. Um, I've been at Cappy six years now. Yeah. Um, still really enjoying it. Yep. Life outside of work is good. I think there's the normal normalization post COVID, which yep. you know I think all of us really reflected on what really mattered over that time. Yeah. Um, so I'm really content, and I yep. think that's a nice place to get to. That's um, nice. In, in personal life and work life. It's, yeah. it's good. Um, uh, Kate Solly mellowed. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I must say I've taken the foot off the gas a little yeah. bit, Michael. Um, good on you. But, you know, there's a fair bit that I still achieve in my day and my life, but certainly not running as fast as I did pre-COVID. No. Um, Kate, you don't have to answer this question, but I know how famous or infamous some of your dinner parties have been in the past at home. That would have been a real stretch trying to keep that dinner party to five people during COVID. Yeah, I actually started an Instagram page called Five Seats Available. 
So oh I have a 680 dining, dining table and it, it really brings me so much joy. So even over COVID, I definitely dialed up the cooking. And when we were in that really extreme lockdown, I did a delivery service to my girlfriends with pre-made meals, with instructions. We actually had a Zoom meeting with Match Wines. Um, so it was, we kept it alive. If anyone was going to keep it alive through COVID, it's you. That sounds incredible. What a great thing to do. Yeah. 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 It was, um, I think you've just got to make the, the best of a bad situation. Yeah. Which, um, you know, as a Victoria, we had a pretty rough trot for a while. Are you calling yourself a Victorian? Yeah, I am. Okay. Just checking. Um, so where are you living now? Um, in Windsor. So okay. during COVID as well, I bought a new warehouse apartment. Well, actually warehouse. So I've moved, I think, less than a kilometre from my last place and I'm a five-minute walk from my work. So life's pretty concentrated. I've never known you to be outside of Windsor, but I, I believe you, you had a stint in London. Yeah, I did. So I, when I was with T2, um, yep. I moved over to London to set up their UK and US operations. Yeah which was an incredible experience. And that I'm trying to work out must've been about 10 years ago now. Um, yeah. So the, yeah, I, I would still live in London if I could. I, yeah. I just love that experience so much. Yeah. So do I, my wife and I debate, she's London, I'm New York in terms of our favorite city. Um, uh, but yeah, beautiful spot. Now, look, I went onto the Cappy website and I thought I'd do a little bit of research and I found a section in your website that talks about some fun facts most of which I already knew. You say on the website you love dress-up parties, Wordle, Chardonnay, and your dog, Molly. Is that correct? So a couple of quick questions. Favourite dress-up party? Wow, there's been a lot. But I've got to say it's probably my best friend, Julian. He had a Moroccan-themed party for his 40th, and he had a Bedouin tent. Um, it oh was gosh. just incredible, and everyone went all out. So that's probably my favourite dress-up. But, There'd be some amazing pictures. Oh, I actually, we have a, a thing called um, L&D at 151, which is where our office is. And last time I presented, I actually did my career history. And then at the end, I ended it with my favourite things that I do, which was a montage of every dress-up I've ever been in. <laughs> and I think the team were just like, who is this person? We don't know anything about this side of you. But it was definitely a trip down memory lane. That's hilarious. Couple more. Why Wordle? I know it's a craze. I know it's a craze. I love language, and mm. I I really want to keep my brain sharp as yep. you get a bit older. So every day I have five word quizzes. I do, um, and it's just a little mini challenge for myself. And my sister and I share our results, and we're bits and nerds around words. So um, yeah, I really enjoy it. We had a nerdy conversation in the office this morning. Um, when to use alternate and when to use alternative in a sentence. Um, uh, on a Friday morning, there's probably lots of other things we should be talking about. Yeah, love it. Two more. Would you put ice in your Chardonnay? Oof, controversial. If my Chardonnay is not chilled and I'm desperate for a glass, yes. <laughs> but I actually think I like a full-bodied Chardonnay, so I actually like it when it opens up. So okay. it doesn't need to be crisp. It's okay. not like a Savion Blanc where you like that really crisp yep. wine. Um, so Chardonnay yeah. can err on the side of a little listen, bit more. Listen to us, right? Such wine connoisseurs. And, and your dog, Molly. Tell me something about your dog, Molly. Well, this is – she's incredible, actually, and yeah. it was a COVID purchase. Yep. And as you know, Michael, I can be very spontaneous. <laughs> and this was in – June 2020, 
and we got the one week of reprieve. So I decided to take some annual leave and I drove to Sydney as quickly as I could to get out of Melbourne. And I was at a friend's house and I was lying in bed because they sleep in and I'm always up early. And I was like, just looking at Gumtree for some reason and this cute dog popped up. And that was it. I rang the lady. I thought I was being puppy spam. She's like, yep, you can have it, but transferring $500 now and pay balance on arrival. <laughs> and so I drove back through Cootamundra um, and Molly came with me for a 10-hour drive and I thought I was going to kill her. I arrived at my house with no food, no bedding, no nothing, and she's probably been the best thing I've ever done. Oh, my gosh. What breed? She's a moodle, um, yeah. but she's quite a unique moodle and she's two kilos, so she's tiny. Wow. Um, and she comes to the office most days. Um, and she's very well loved by the team. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, Kate, I thought um, we'd go back in memory lane a little bit. I, I heard you say that you did that at a dinner party or a dress-up party. But I wanted to just chat with you about your career pre-Cappy for a while. We'll come back to Cappy, of course. And I just went back to your LinkedIn profile. Not that it's this, always the source of truth, but it just reminded me of a few things that I'd forgotten. So it said that you started as state manager at Figgins. Now, we, we all know that no one starts their careers. Maybe you did. No, no one officially starts their career as state manager. <laughs> um, uh, what did you do before it? Kind of first job. Oh, first job. Um, I'm a country girl. So my mum owned a jewellery store. So my first job ah. was working in the shop floor with mum. So at a very early age, I think 15, I started selling high-priced iron jewellery. For memory, was that Warrigal? Yeah, yeah. There you so go. that was my first job, but my first real job, um, I would say I dropped out of uni, which is another thing that most people don't know about me. I studied nursing, which in hindsight was probably a very interesting choice for me because I can't stand blood, vomit, poo, you name, all those things are just something that I don't want to deal with. And I'd never been in hospital, so I really didn't understand. I dropped out of uni and then um, I was like, what am I going to do? Like, study is not for me, but I want to do something. And I ended up, because of my retail experience, working at Florsham Shoe, yeah. Shoe Stores and David Jones at the same time. And that really kick-started my career. Um, and I was incredibly lucky to move up the ranks of David Jones very quickly. So mm. it started as a casual, yeah. then moved to sales. I think they called them two ICs in those days, or yeah. sales supervisor. Yeah. And then my last job with them was a department manager at the Glen um, running cosmetics, shoes and accessories. And I think I might have been not only 22 or 23. So that was wow. really the start. Um, and then I, I decided, and it was quite strategic, even though it wasn't, I decided that department stores probably weren't the future of retailing and I wanted to move into more big box and like multi-site management. And I ended up at Warner Brothers Studio Stores, which is really bizarre as well mm. because cartoons, not really into them. But I, I was quite excited about working for an American kind of franchise. And so I worked at the Crown Casino Store for those yep. in Melbourne yep. that remember it, bouncing yep. a ball out the front in a Bugs Bunny suit and all the theatre that went with it. And then, um, yeah, and I moved around with them as well. I became quite a bit of a troubleshooter. So I moved to Adelaide for six months to fix yep. the store. Um, and just walked through it. And then the ownership changed. And at that point, I decided it was probably not for me anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And then I moved into what I called lifestyle re um, retailing, which is the first iteration. And this is, I can't even work out what year it was, but 
um, there were two amazing women from Maya that um, started Bruce Homewares in Malvern. And it was a beautiful multi-level store that had food, lifestyle, you name it. It was, it was just this beautiful store. And I've always been attracted to beautiful things. I, yeah. I really enjoy brands and I enjoy yeah. things that are, are tactile. And they were incredible um, to work for. So I ran that store for a couple of years. And then I kind of thought, I don't want to work on the shop floor for the rest of my life. So how do I get skills outside of retail that mm. I can then come back and have that career progression? Because I think sometimes you can kind of get put in a, a box if you're good at selling or if you're good at leading teams and you don't move further. So I made the plunge to Mobile Petroleum to work in their call center because I wanted to learn how to use a computer. I wanted to learn like the corporate world. And that was actually incredible as well. And I've always been kind of a first person to put my hand up, special projects, whatever is required. And I got involved in a few of their like special projects, which got me out of the call center and working like with the leadership teams and, and bigger teams. And that was an, that was a really insightful time. I, Definitely, no, I don't really love call center work. It doesn't really <laughs> float my boat, but um, the more strategic stuff was really exciting. And then I kind of was missing that sales part and how how could I get back into retail? And I remember it was a Saturday morning and this is pre-seat days, pre-computers at home. I opened the age on the careers page and in the bottom left-hand corner, I can still see the ad. And it said, do you love shoes? I'm like, oh, do I love shoes? Yes, I do. <laughs> and it was for Figgins Group. Yeah. So they had all of the brands like Emporium, Shoebiz, Scooter. Um, what else was there? Oh, you named it. They had it. Yeah. Um, and I was working with them for six months as an area manager and doing it quite well, I must say, and really enjoyed the team development. And I loved moving around. Like it wasn't that I was trapped in four walls as in a store. Mm. And within six months, I got the tap on the shoulder to move to Sydney to be the state manager. And wow, was that a wild ride? Um, so big, big, big role. Um, mm. Was I ready for it? Not sure, but I, I worked as hard as I could to make sure I was ready for it. And in that time, um, really turn that business around. We had the highest step. We had really poor customer service results. We, you, you name the KPIs, they were all in decline. And New South Wales was this state that just didn't work. And by the end, it was a really successful business. And I think, you know, I really value that time. I've made mm. really good friends yeah. with Figgins and they were probably leading edge in terms of customer service and their systems were incredible for a yeah. family owned business. And, yeah. and it really made me understand that I like consumer products. Mm. I like working with teams and I really enjoyed the achievement of sales. Yeah. Like that, that's yeah. kind of where it went. But then the business started to not perform particularly well. And this is, I think, when we first met, Michael, when I moved to Saba. Well, just go back for a sec. I want to stay on Figgins for a sec. Um, I looked at your your profile and it, you joined in 2003, left in 2007. And and I agree with you. I, you know, Figgins Group had a really good reputation, some really good people who have since left and gone on to different, bigger, better things. And... I want to just stay on Figgins for a sec because I, 
I don't I didn't know this story about Figgins. You would have known it. We've never talked about this, but I dug up some research on Figgins and it went back to a 2010 financial review article. And I'm gonna read some text and I'll I'd like your thoughts on it. Sure. Mr. Figgins took over the business in nineteen ninety-four when his parents died in a helicopter crash in Melbourne. He built Figgins into one of Australia's largest shoe retailers, acquiring, as you said, the Forshine brand, shifting manufacturing overseas. In 2006, you were still there. Figgins Holdings had annual revenue of more than $130 million, 800 employees, and was ranked in the top 500 companies in the BRW Rich List. The company planned to list on the stock exchange once earnings reached 25 mil. But changing consumer tastes, rising costs, and increased discounting by major department stores took their toll on the business over the past few years after you'd left. And in 2010, the business went into voluntary administration and never returned. That all happened three years after you left. Could you see that coming at the time? Yeah, I could. Yeah. Really? Yeah, and and probably not to the extent that it got no. to. No. Um, but there was definitely a shift in the business. Right. There was a shift in performance. Um, but yeah, look, I, I really loved my time there. But I, I think, yes, if I look back, there were signs that things were going wrong. You might have just said it already, but give me an example of a sign. Was it literally performance? Yeah, performance. Yeah. Um, and you could just feel, do you know when businesses start to, and I'm not going to say unravel, Yep. but they're, I have said unravel, but I don't mean unravel. No. But the pressure gets put on. Like there, there's more, there's more drive on cost. There's more drive on performance, um, and the celebratory culture that they had became not as celebratory. No. Um, and then there were some brands that were performing really well, and there were other brands that weren't. Mm. And I'm not sure what happened at mm. a leadership level, but you yep. could definitely sense that coming through. And and they also incurred a lot of costs in that time. They moved their office. They had a warehouse. So you could see there was a lot of investment that had been put in. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure if that was, you know, part of the issue as well. Yeah. So you said you moved to Saba. I've got a note here. So you moved uh, in 2007 to the apparel group as state manager, which is where I first met you, as you said. Now, my recollection is that you were living in Sydney and we met through a senior manager's program and here's my recollection. There were you and Anne Natalie from Saba, and then the rest of the managers were from Sportscraft. Um, and I remember one night, you and Anne calling me the night before a workshop saying, do we really have to do our homework? We know this stuff, which I thought was hilarious. Do you remember that call? I don't, but <laughs> I, I can imagine Anne and I saying that. <laughs> you both got together and you started very apologetic, but then just gave it to me. And... <clears throat> Not because of that call, but um, I did think that probably you and Anne, with no disrespect to the rest of the group who were amazing, I thought you were different. You know, beyond the swagger of your confidence, it felt like for me that both of you were really commercially minded in a group that perhaps were just trying to find their way. And I, my question to you at that time in your career was, did you ever feel that? Did you ever feel that, and whether it's back to when you were 15 helping mum in a jewellery store, that... You just had a commercial lens on on business that was a little different to perhaps some of your your contemporaries. Yeah, well, I I do think when you grow up in a family business, yeah. you naturally yeah. get the sense of dollars and cents, 
and the bills that need to be paid. And I think I've always treated every business that I've worked for like it's my own. And I do think that gives you a greater sense of the commercial side of a business, like where you spend the money, how you actually turn it around. And I've always been a really naturally curious person. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always seek the answer. Um, <laughs> yes. I always try and uncover that even if there's not an answer there. So, you know, I, I love numbers, which my parents will laugh at because maths was my worst subject <laughs> at school. But I, I really enjoy the commercial side of business. And I think that's why I've ended up in a wholesale side yeah. um, because I feel as though my role now is far more commercial than a retail role because the retail okay. metrics are quite transactional. Yep. Um, and when you are in the retail side, you, you really are customer facing and you can't make many decisions about the total commercial out, um, yep. outcome of the business. Yep. Whereas in wholesale, you are looking at one, I love learning about other businesses. So every day, you know, I'm inspired when I talk mm. to our customers about what yep. their challenges are and how they work. And also I can be part of a solution that can make their business perform better because yep. we provide goods or a brand that customers are actually really excited about. So um, we'll probably get to that when we keep talking about my career and when it pivoted and how yeah. that happened. Yeah. So in some ways, the wholesale piece is almost the best of both worlds for you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for me, wholesale, and I always always say this to my team or when I'm recruiting and they haven't worked for wholesale, with a retail business, you ha actually have to wait for someone to go across that door mm. to convert a sale. And I'm mm. not talking about online, but yep. if you're in a shop, yep. if someone doesn't come in, you have got no opportunity to make a difference. Whereas in this world, every day I can create opportunities. I can look at businesses that I want to talk to. I can talk to our wholesale partners. Um, I can create opportunities where I don't think in retail you can create an opportunity beyond selling mm. more to the customers that come. Yeah, in. yeah, okay. So let's move forward. Not long after you moved to Sports Girl, uh, which was your first sort of official national role as national sales manager and in a really established sort of powerhouse business like a sports girl, um, that must have been different for you as well. Yeah, it, it really was. And I I left Saba prematurely. Like yep. I really enjoyed Saba and yep. Anne Natali was such an advocate for me. Um, yep. And in hindsight, I moved to sports girl too quickly. Okay. Um, I, I think I was very ambitious. I think I didn't do my research on what the role was. Yep. Um, and I'm a change agent. And when you have a big business with multiple levels and multiple structures, I'm not very good at just implementing what's already there. Yep. Um, it doesn't excite me. And I felt a little bit disconnected from the the customer and the team. Um, so so I think I only lasted at Sports Girl about a year. Mm. And culturally, it was just a misalignment yep. for them yep. and me and vice yep. versa. Yeah. Sort of thinking about this podcast, uh, it made me reflect on our conversations. And there's a lot that's sort of been flooding back for me. I remember one day when you were at Sports Girl, you commented on how many meetings you were having to attend and how were you ever going to get the work done. And, you know, that's a, a regular problem for many of us in, in the workplace today. Do you do you think we're all guilty today still of having too many meetings? Is there a risk that we can we can overdo it? Yeah, yeah, I think there is. I think yeah. meetings serve a purpose. Yeah. Um, 
we've worked really hard at CAPI to reduce meetings. Yeah. And the only way you can do that is by having the right systems. Yeah. So we, um, we only have meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Yeah. Whips to us or to me and my teams, I don't need a check-in. Yeah. I know you can do your job. Meetings yeah. for actually making big decisions and being more strategic. Yeah. And that took a fair bit of shift as well. Um, but we've got lots of tech that supports that. So, you know, we've got a task management app called Asana. We we have a daily update, like with full transparency that every day people post on the Slack channel what they're doing for the day, the tasks they've got to achieve, where they are. Mm -hmm. So I feel really confident that my team are executing, but it's always linked back to their um, KPIs and their metrics. Yep. And we have also a performance management tool or feedback tool called 15.5. Every week people, you know, update us on what their success is, what their challenges are, how are they going with their KPIs. So those management tools have allowed us to cut meetings completely in That's a way. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm familiar with both of those products. Uh, um, makes such a difference, right? What a, fanta oh, what a fantastic thing. Transparency. Yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. If you think about the next generation of employee, they're not always open to a conversation. No. But to type an answer or ask yeah. for help via yeah. one of these platforms, it's really, I think, empowering. Yeah. Um, and it takes away that awkwardness of going, can I have a chat? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it, for us, it works so well. I know that there are some older, more established businesses with people in them that couldn't think of anything worse than to provide feedback to someone online. But but I totally get, I totally yeah. get it. And more and more of our clients are talking about that with us. So just before we completely move on from Sports Girl, so you were at Figgins, you were at Sports Girl, both were state roles. Yeah. You then start to move your career into a national role. Sorry, uh, Sports Girl was national. Figgins yeah. and Saba, I should say. What's the big difference between moving from state manager roles to national manager roles in your mind? Yeah, it's quite a leap, I would say. Yeah. And and I feel as though in in the time I was doing it, there wasn't a lot of training around the differences yeah. um, or what skill set you needed. I think the national role, depending on the organisation, is far more strategic Um and less people development. So you you have a senior team. So that's a very different style of management to a junior team of store managers or area managers. Yep. So yep. so it's a different management style. Yeah. I think um, they're far more commercial as well. So you you have a P and L responsibility in a national role. Um, I know some businesses at state level you do, but it, it is that overall commercial performance of the business. Um, and it's less hands on. Yeah. It's very much around a head office role yeah, yeah. versus um, speaking to the customers and the people that actually are on the front line. Do you almost need to find a different set of activities to fuel the adrenaline? Because, yeah. you, as you said, you are a little bit more removed from And it's not your personal success, it's, it's your team's success. And I think, again, where I've ended up now, I have customers of my own. I mm. have meals that I do myself. And I actually really enjoy that. Like, yeah. I, I like that sense of an end to end, yeah. But I also have the balance here that I've got a team that execute, and you know their successes are my successes, and I'm seeing them grow and develop, and you know become amazing account managers. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, in 2010, you moved to your own business, and it didn't take long for one of your clients to snap you up in Elwood Clothing. Yeah, um, I know that story, and you moved in there as GM pretty much yep. from the day one. So that was your first shift from retail to wholesale. 
primarily wholesale. I know Elwood Clothing had some stores. Yeah. And you've talked a little bit about the differences in um, wholesale. It was also one of the smaller organisations you'd worked in in your career that I know of. And we both know you have big ideas. Were they ready for them? Yeah, they were. Really? Um, you know, that was, and thanks to you, Michael, I actually ended up at Elwood. So I, know. It was I, good. I think, good I think we need to give you some credit there. Um, they, they were incredible. And at the time I joined, um, that product offering was, you know, you could do no wrong. Like the mm. t shirts were selling like hotcakes, they were opening retail stores. Um, it was a family-owned business again, and I think you'll see as we go through my career, I thrive in family-owned businesses because I like the accountability to the person that's paying the bills. I really enjoy that. And so Elwood was incredible for me. They had a really young and inspiring team. Um, the family was really passionate about making it work, and Andy, who was the founder, was probably the, one of the most creative people I've ever worked for. Mm. Um, he was incredible. And, you know, no job goes without its challenges, but I had a really great time there. And to start with, it was, you know, they were really wanting to grow their retail business, which is why I, I probably was right for that role. And we were very successful in some retail stores that were doing big numbers, like that Chadston store was one of the most successful stores by, by dollars that I'd ever seen from a brand. Mm. Um, and then the wholesale business, you know, we were working with big organizations like Meyer and Glue, and and that's where I really started to enjoy that side of it. Like, what's their strategy? How do we fit into it? What what does the brand define when you're in a multi-branded offer? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And then I was also across, you know, the buying and the planning, and I, I could actually in, input and impact across multiple parts of a business. And mm. I think that was the foundation of my um, career that has allowed me to come to somewhere like Cappy because mm. in a small business, you actually need to be a generalist. You yep. need to know about yep. supply chain. You need to know about, you know, the finances, the team, the HR, because there isn't these layers of, oh, I'll just go and speak to Joe. <laughs> Joe yeah. doesn't exist in a small business. You've got to do it yourself. Oh, you were definitely GM from day. You would have been exposed to everything, as you said, in, in Elwood. That's fantastic. Um, we know you then moved to T2 um, yeah. in a gl first global role. Yeah. Um, my recollection of T2 back then, and I'm not saying it's not now, but at the time it was that brand had lots of momentum. It was new onto the market. Um, uh, what did the global part of that role look like for you? Yeah, so it was a really interesting um, step to T2. I was wanting to have a career break. I wanted yep. to have six months off and yep. I, had, I think a week off. <laughs> so, um, I met um, the founder's sister, um, Kirsten, and we hit it off and I really wanted to work for that business. And they'd just been acquired by Unilever. Yep. So I was quite interested in working through a transition as well, just to see how that played out. And as you said, it was just on fire, the brand at that mm, stage. So mm. I was like, I want to be part of a winning yep. team. I yep. can see that this is where it's going. So I actually started in a very... Um, interesting role, which was um, a concept that they'd come up with, which is called T2B, which was tea cafes, like a barista bar for tea. And we quickly worked out that that was not going to stack up. <laughs> you had to make a lot of tea to pay the rent and pay the staff. It was a very time-consuming model. 
So I think I did that for about six months and we decided that it wasn't commercially viable and dissolved that concept. And at the time, uh, Rachel Kelly, who is still a great friend of mine, yeah. um, she pulled me into the office and she was the CEO at that time. She's like, would you be up to moving to London? I was like, I think so. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. And it was the quickest move. I think I was told in February and I was permanently there by April or May. So it was a pretty quick decision. So the global part was um, part of the burnout for T2, as I recall it. And they had a number of stores that they had to open in that time. And London was earmarked because Unilever's head office was in London. Yeah. Um, and being a tea market, they saw great opportunity there. Um, so the global piece, I was retail operations, so global retail operations. And in that time, we opened five stores and two in the US and launched wholesale and an online store. And boy, was it a wild ride. Yeah. It was a true startup in yep. a global company because yep. um, it was the first time we'd all done it. We, yep. We'd never been in another country. Um all of the different legislation, all of the different mm. rules, the HR, you name it. And it, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, I look back really fondly on what we achieved. Um, there were lots of challenges. And I think the biggest challenge is I was one person with store teams with head office support closed when the stores were trading. Yes. So that was, that was um, you know, I, I think... I got very into the detail and the the hands on um, whilst I was in that role. And so that's a that's a exciting opportunity and a tough gig all in one. Well, um, uh, is this true? Is this true? I've been peddling this myth for a while about T two. Is it true that the head office staff in Melbourne for T two couldn't go into head office with a cup of coffee from a takeaway store? Is there any truth to that? 100% true. So was there almost this underground vibe of people having to get a secret coffee somewhere else before coming back in? Yeah, I, I know <laughs> of people putting a Red Bull in a teacup and drinking that. I oh, know my gosh. Putting coffee in a T2 canister. Look, T2 was incredible yeah. from a consistency perspective. Yeah. And Marianne had a vision. Yeah. And, you know, it, the ways of working were really established so yeah. you know we had to wear black because the store's team wear black yeah there was no coffee um there definitely was before its time uh you know a focus on wellness and health yeah. and well-being so yeah. i think you know they they built an incredible culture yeah and the level of service across the board yeah was second to none yeah from stores to wholesale to call center to to the marketing yeah um yeah so it's a, an amazing success success yeah. Oh, definitely. It, I really do think it was one of the top prominent brands at, for, at its time, for sure. Yeah. So just before we get into Cappy, which I'm really excited to talk further with you about, that's a really uh, amazing journey from a career perspective. I feel I have to ask you of, I'm sure there are plenty of role models that you've worked with across those organizations. Just pick one and tell us tell us why. Oh, that's a big question, It Michael. is a biggie. And there's so many that I could yeah. reference for different reasons. Yeah. Um, I don't know how far to go back. But <laughs> I think if I really think about the start of my career, when I was at David, David Jones, I had um, a sales manager and her name was Georgie Blake. 
and we've lost touch and hopefully she hears this, but she was absolutely incredible. She had this drive. Um, she was a mentor. Um, she definitely wanted the success of her team. And I felt like she was the reason I was successful at Dave Jones. She set me up for success. And yeah, I, I always look back and think about her and she was incredible. And mm. she ended up going to Baker's Delight and moving to WA. But um, she was probably the first time I'd had a leader that was really inspiring. And that yeah. was at the ripe old age of 20. Yeah. And I could see a path that I wanted to be like her. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. You and I have talked about sort of the the balance between being the rah-rah inspiring leader versus the one of su not substance, but, you know, just a little bit more earthy to the way that you lead. Um, where are you sort of on that sort of continuum? I would say when we were working together, I was definitely rah-rah. Yeah. Um, I'm not now. I'm, yep. I'm very much around, and I think my team would tell you this today if you asked any of them, <laughs> I'm just about honest conversation. Yeah. And if I feel it, I say it. Yeah. Um, I always lead with kindness. Yeah. So even if it's the hardest conversation I have to have, I'll lead with kindness. But I do, I still get excited about the celebrations. I still yeah. get excited about success. Um, so I always want to make sure everyone knows the path to success mm. and we celebrate the milestones. But Definitely not a town hall rah-rah type of girl at all. <laughs> well, there's lots to celebrate. So let's talk about Cappy, the beverage company. When I typed in Cappy a week ago, it had your brand and then it had a whole lot of things calling Conversations API, which I thought was hilarious in a Google search. Oh. Um, so you joined in a national role, then sort of sales in marketing director where you are now. Um, just tell us, how did, how did you actually get to Cappy in the first place? Yeah, so interesting. So um, I was at TT, obviously, and I was in a global wholesale role was my last role. So I moved back from the UK and headed up global wholesale, which I loved. Like it was, I was like, this is the world to me, <laughs> food and beverage um, and wholesale. So I really enjoyed that role. And I'm, I, I believe I had a massive impact on the wholesale business um, of where it is. Mm. And I was feeling a little... Um, Kind of stagnant in a way and the founders had left by this stage it was fully owned by unilever i was still in a global role um so there's a lot of after hours a lot of long hours midnight calls um and there was just this sense that it was time to move yeah and a girl that i'd worked with at t2 she just rang me and she's like hey i think you need to come and talk to the owner pitney at cappy we need you i was like okay so Pitsy is larger than life. He's an incredible entrepreneur um, and just a great guy. So we caught up for lunch and I think I laughed the whole time. And <laughs> we, um, he always does his business over lunch. And we basically had this chat and he's like, you need to meet our CEO, who's Emma, and she's on mat leave at the moment. And I think within two weeks, we got to a point where I decided that this was the right role for me. Um, and I saw some real similarities with T2, one being an Australian brand, one being really premium. Um, but I also saw that there was opportunity for growth because right. they had been operating at that stage for, I think, I'm going to say six years. So I joined at their sixth year. We're now at our 12th year. And there was some real big milestones they wanted to hit. And I felt 
quite excited by those. And I thought I had the skill set to help the brand, you know, achieve what they wanted to. Hasn't been an easy ride. No. So, um, so it's, tell us the story of Cappy. I know you joined when you did, but you said sort of back to 2013 was when it all started. Um, tell us the story from then to now. Like, just give us a little bit more of a story on it. Yeah, sure. So um, Cappy was founded by Pitsy yep. um, Folk. Yeah. And his background was um, food and beverage. And he was always frustrated about what was available in Australia from an end-to-end beverage perspective. So that's how Cappy was formed. Yeah. Um, he always wanted to be premium, um, no preservatives, no artificial colours and no plastic. Yeah. And at that time, that actually didn't exist. Yeah. So he was very much ahead of the curve when you look at the trends that are now um, still the trends. Cappy mm. has been that since day one. Mm. Um, and they started off predominantly as a hospitality brand because yep. Pitsy wanted it to not be devalued by the supermarkets. And I think, um, you know, supermarkets have their place, but from a premium perspective, those opinion leaders are actually in the hospitality um, world. So that was a, a really ingenious kind of strategy for him, but a slow mm. revenue, build, if you mm. think about it that way, it's like door knocking and, you know, restaurant by restaurant, bar by bar. So when I joined... Um, the business was definitely on premise, around about eighty percent on premise, and then a little bit in um, liquor retail with Dan Murphy, who've been supporters since day one. And the strategy was always to kind of diversify the channels, and we we have done that, but it took COVID to get there. So we we had a revenue goal before COVID, which we just couldn't get over that that hurdle. And then COVID came, um, we had a start of 25, which we then reduced to five because we just had no revenue. Um, but it was probably the most amazing time for the brand because it allowed us to actually start again. We were like, what does this brand want to stand for? And in that time, we changed to an Australian bottle. We defined our values. We um, signed on Coles, Coles Liquor, 7-Eleven, Metcash, all in the spate of, of COVID. So we, we transformed the business. Um, and even from a people and culture perspective, what we were pre-COVID and what we are now is is completely different and the right, mm. the right thing for the time now. So, Kate, uh, so you're now into the likes of Coles and Woolies and that sort of thing, and yet I don't feel like you've lost the premiumness of your brand. How come? I think, I think it's just the... Um, it's the natural life cycle of a brand. So you build it and then we were finding that our customers that were experiencing it in a distillery or a restaurant, the number one inquiry to our website is where can I buy your product? Yeah. So when I first started, we launched an e-commerce platform because we're like, we need a solution to get our products to people. And we're probably one of the first beverage brands to go out with a single website, um, which has mm. been very successful for us. Mm. And then um, accessibility is part of our actual vision as a brand. Like we want to be the most premium and accessible brand in Australia. Yeah. And accessibility is actually having the product in the places that our customers want to buy it. Yeah. Um, and that's pay, paid off really well for us. So I'm just curious about how, a, a, say, a, I don't know, a blood orange sparkling mineral water is made. I mean, how do you actually make a bottle of blood orange sparkling mineral water? 
you're going to test my knowledge here, but I can give you, I can give you the. Tell me the, anything you tell me is going to be more than I know. Yeah, sure. So, so we have a bottling program planted. Yep. Um, and basically our sparkling water comes out of the ground. Yep. Naturally sparkly. And then it goes through a purification process. And then there's a massive vat. Yep. That uh-huh. where it's mixed. So basically, um, a minimum run for us is 600 cartons. So it's a bit of product. Yeah. And then um, it basically goes through the line. What's unique about Cappy is we don't use any preservatives. We use uh, a process called um, pasteurization, which means it's heated up to 77 degrees, which removes all the pathogens. So it's an expensive process, but it means that, you know, everything in the bottle is natural and from the earth, basically. Um, yeah, it's a pretty simple process. I'm probably, our manufacturers will be like, hey, really <laughs> not giving us the, the credit that's due. No, that's right. Um, but I think the more in, the more interesting part for me is how we actually develop the flavours. Yep. So we've got a brand innovation um, director who's incredible and, and has a, a great career in bartending and absolute vodka, and he tinkers away and makes them by hand. And then works with the lab to then put it into a commercial um, recipe. Yeah. So your article that I mentioned at the start, that was I think in May, it talked about quite openly the sales growth, um, you know, something like 40% to $20 million in the past year. And part of that might have come off the back, as you said, of COVID and the necessity to think differently about channels. Um, What's the likelihood that you can sort of continue, maybe not on that same growth trajectory, but, you know, what does it look like for you guys going forward? Yeah, look, we've, we're really confident. Really? Um, the, this year is going to present lots of challenges, as we all know, from an economical standpoint and cost of living. Yeah. We haven't exhausted the potential customer reach. Yeah. Um, so if we look at our channel split and our customers and our state performance, we're really strong in Victoria and we've got other states that we could actually maximise sales. Um, we are very fortunate that COVID made people really think about where their products were from. So reporting Australian products has really become front of mind for customers and, you know, the timing for us was perfect there. Um so, yeah, look, I think this year our growth isn't obviously as big as what we've been. We're, we're looking for stability this yep. year and really yep. um, focusing on our core and the customers that we have and maximising those. But there is still plenty of opportunity. And it's it's actually quite humbling how many inbound inquiries we get um, each week that people want to stock Cappy or buy Cappy. And, you know, they can be anything from a small cafe to a huge hotel chain. And they're seeking us out. So yeah. that's a, an amazing place for a brand to get to. Yeah. It's funny you say that, Kate. We, um, we're looking at uh, running an event, a work event at the Adelphi Hotel. Oh, yeah. And when we looked on their pricing model, they had a list of all the things that are included and they called out Cappy as yeah. well. I have yeah. a feeling since we were preparing or I was preparing to catch up with you that I'm seeing Cappy everywhere now that I didn't even realise at the time. It's like when you buy a new car. It is. You start to see them everywhere. So, yeah, it's – um, yeah, I, I, I'm constantly being called by friends going, oh, my God, you're everywhere. I know, now. I know. Um, and, you know, that was part of the distribution strategy. Like the shelf presence is our billboard. Yeah. You know, everyone yep. walks into a grocery store yep. every week or every day, like if you're not very planned with your meal prep. So that, <laughs> that really has kind of 
um, enhanced our brand because if you think as a bartender, our bottles behind the the, the counter, you're not seeing Cappy no. like that. So that's been that's been really great for us. In talking to you about Cappy, I have to call out one five one Albert Street because it's if you do just the minimal amount of research on Cappy, it comes up as a as a, a really newsworthy story. It's the location of your main office. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, uh, I'm into. I love good architecture. You like good things visually. Yeah. Um, was it a key sort of pillar in making sure that people came back to work through COVID or post COVID, having such a nice space to work in? Yeah, it's a great place to work in, and um, the office is beautiful. We have yeah. wide open spaces. Yeah. We have a commercial kitchen. We've got multiple places that you can work. Um, we have a hybrid model still, so. Yeah. We have two days that are compulsory or office days yep. and then people can choose how they work, which I think is really the way of the future. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I come into the office three or four days a week. I, yep. I enjoy the space um, and we actually share it with Lucy Folk, which is a jewellery and apparel business, which yep. is Pitsy, the founder's daughter. Yeah. Um, and then we have Upstart Advisory, which is our outsource CFO function as well. So we, we have a shared office yep. arrangement. Yeah. Um, but it's also great in terms of client um, engagement. So we do a lot of entertaining, a yeah. lot of lunches, um, an incredible boardroom that people yeah. use for their conferences. So it's kind of a space that is open for our, our partners. It feels like an extension of your home with just a five-minute walk back to your actual home. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, it, you mentioned Pitsy before. Have I pronounced yep. that name correctly? Perhaps, yep. yep. Fascinating story. Uh does Pitsy follow the stereotype of the traditional family-run business owner that likes to kind of, with respect, meddle in everything, can't let go? And how do you manage him in that sense? So COVID was a big shift for him as well. And right. I think um, it, he moved to Noosa in COVID. Wow. Um, I, would, I would have too if I could. Yeah, and then definitely – he became more of a chairman over that time and, okay. and, and has that role. He trusts his leadership team immensely. Um, certainly likes to see the results delivered yeah. like any of course. Um, But, you know, he, we, we really value his opinion yeah. and he's still involved to a point, but yeah. definitely more in that advisory chairman role. So, Kate, when I think about your career, you've lived such a long period of time leading and inspiring people and teams to hit sales targets, budgets, whatever. And it's never easy. Um, and I know that there's not a secret to it, but I'm going to ask the question, what's the secret in helping teams reach their numbers? Because you and I have lived a life of, do we go individualize incentives, team incentives, yeah. recruitment strategies, blah, blah, blah. Is there a, if you sort of look back at it, would you go, if there's one common theme that works, What's your thoughts? I think I, it always comes back to the most simplest thing. It's yep. breaking it down into achievable chunks. Yep. So how many new customers do we yep. need to get? How many, like, I, I really think it is as simple as that. Yep. You've also got to have the right people in of the course. right seats. Yep. Um, so, you know, you can be the best leader, but if someone doesn't have the capability or the capacity to actually deliver no matter what you do, it's not going to get there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's breaking it down into achievable chunks. Mm -hmm. um, I still to this day send out a daily sales update and it's really just breaking it down by day. What do we need to do? Celebrating the milestones because mm. I think sometimes 
we get a little bit too focused on the end number, yeah. but we've got to work out what are the steps we're going to take to get to that end number. Yeah, such a strong message. Um, beyond, beyond just the number two, as you said, in intangible ways that people can actually can do yeah. something about day to day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, maybe the second sort of secret type question. Um, I guess my question is, what's the secret for you as a leader over the journey not to get too obsessed by the numbers and breathe? Because it can become also consuming, can't it? Yeah, it can. But I think the number is the result of the activities. You right. Do. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, at Cappy, we've had years and years that we didn't achieve. And that is actually really hard to stay mm. motivated. But if you believe in what you're going to do, you fundamentally have the right product, strategy, and team, that's all that's in your control. And I think it's the activity, not the number. So I think, you know, and you've got to have fun along the way. If you're not having fun, you're not going to interact with your customers. You're yeah. not going to have those great conversations. And you never want to be part of a losing team. You want to no. be surrounded by winners. Yeah. And if you feel like you're winning, even though the number doesn't say you're winning, you're going to go out with that attitude. Yeah, 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 okay. Um, Kate, just in terms of um, I've known you as always being someone, you said it before, almost for a long time, can't sit still, big dreams, big visions. And I was in a meeting the other day and someone said to me, which I thought was hilarious, they've gone, my husband keeps telling me if you're not stressed, you're depressed, which, oh. I, which I thought was an interesting admission and, and yeah. I think a few of us could learn from that. But yeah. going forward, what are you most excited about or stressed about in the next 12 months, but, but in a good way? Hmm. I think we're in for a pretty rough time socially, um, like if you actually think of the, the bigger factors that are impact people. And, you know, I, I do care about society and I think there's some pretty tough things that are going to come up for a lot of people and and that that worries me like mm. i know there will be people that are struggling financially which then impacts their relationships which then impacts their lives um and i think as a leader we've got to think about your team in that way like yeah. what is it that's outside work that's going to affect them so yeah. that's probably the one thing you know i'm really conscious of from an excitement perspective I just love what I do. Mm. You know, I, I look at what we've got coming up and this year is a year of consolidation. Um, it's a year of doing some pretty meaty projects. Like we've got a new website that's being launched, which I'm really excited about. We've done a brand update. Um, so that's really, you know, that's going to be really nice to see it actually hit the shelves. Um, and I look forward to my team. Like they're a young team and they're growing every day. And I, I feel as though um, we've done a lot of work and, We've got the right people in the right seats yeah. and, yeah. you know, they show up and they, they believe in what we're trying to do. And I think that's, that's really exciting. You mentioned earlier about the society piece and where things are at. I would imagine in your role, you said you work with some customers directly and you hear lots of conversations on premise as an example. Yeah. yeah. So you're probably hearing some things that some parts of other corporate entities aren't hearing on the ground like you are. And I, I, looked at your website the other day and there was a really nice uh, audio clip, I think it was audio, of a uh, restaurateur saying that uh, Cappy will look after me when the chips are down. And I thought that was a really nice expression. Um, can you tell us something about how you, how you show that level of compassion or how you have previously um, yeah, in the business? Think, yeah. Over COVID, we, 
we were really at the forefront of going out to our customers going, we know this is tough. We're yeah. here to help you, whatever we can do. And look, we're a small business. So mm. our ability to help is, is limited to the people that we have. So, um, you know, we've got pity mentors, a lot of restaurateurs and helps them with their businesses. Um, so he's always getting people ringing him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're just real people. I think yep. that's yep. what it is. Like we have real conversations and we'll help people through. It's a very Australian thing to help people when the chips are down. Yeah. Very and nice. Sometimes it's even just having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes, you know, um, a couple of people that we've worked with over the past, they had an announcement about their business a couple of days ago and I, I literally just dropped them an email and say, hey, if you want to come and work in the office for a couple of days, I know it must be tough in there. And that goes a little way. Yeah. Um, it's not a grand gesture, but it's yeah. like I'm thinking of you yeah. and I know it could be tough. Kate, we must wrap it up. One final question. What's one bit of advice you'd have for others, whether it be in life or in business? You've already shared lots of little gold nuggets, but give us one more. I think it's just enjoy it. Enjoy yeah. where it comes. Like there's going to be days that are bad. There's going to be days that are challenging. But I think... This life is to be lived yeah. and and work is such a big part of life. And if you don't enjoy it, actually do something about it. Yeah, yeah. Kate, it's been amazing to catch up. Uh, it's been far too long. It has. Um, I hope it we can... catch up again outside yeah, of a podcast. One. Maybe you can invite me to one of your famous home dinner parties. And even if I'm the waiter, I promise I'll be serving Cappy Sparkling. I would love for you to come. <laughs> Adorable. I actually need to find and We need to actually catch up about your life outside of what's we'll, happening We'll catch here. up. So we'll, There's lots going we'll on. It. Yeah, fantastic. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you. See you. Thanks, Bye. Kate. Bye.